Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. We're here with Katie Henry, who's the author of multiple books. Her most recent release is Gideon Green in Black and White, which is actually her first mystery. So you have jumped genres and even switched mediums, which is, I think, really important to being a writer and surviving in the industry is the ability to be adaptable. So why don't you talk a little bit about where you've been and what you've done and how you've changed over the course of your career? I started out my writing life as a playwright back in high school because I was a theater kid, but I was a mediocre singer, dancer, and actor. So you got to do something. I decided what I would do was write plays, and I had a fantastic time doing that. I ended up going to college for playwriting, which if anyone is considering that, it was a lot of fun, um, but not a whole lot of job opportunities after graduation for that. I had a fantastic time being a playwright, and I I think the experience of going to art school and having sort of that workshop experience was invaluable in learning how to like take feedback and also give feedback that would be helpful to others. So I graduated with a degree in playwriting. Job opportunities were limited there. I realized that I had been, throughout the course of college, I had only been writing about teenagers. You know, most of my classmates did not exclusively write about 16-year-olds in their plays, but I did. I've spent all this time writing about teenagers. Maybe I should try writing for them. Uh, And I loved YA when I was a teenager. Uh, So I started reading it again, fell in love with it all over again, and decided that I wanted to try writing YA and I wanted to try writing novels. That is basically how I got here. (laughs) I had to laugh a little bit to myself when you were talking about following what you love and doing what you want and getting your degree in the thing that matters to you and then finding out you can't get a job. That's a real thing. My listeners are probably sick of hearing this. I double majored in English literature and philosophy and religion. I learned so much. I am overeducated and unemployable. I had... (laughs) No desire to teach, no desire to go into any type of teaching, uh, English, or any type of ministry. Both of those degrees without going on for your master's are fairly useless. I say that like tongue-in-cheek. Communication and empathy and all of the things that are absolutely critical to being a good writer, we're all buried in there. But on a resume, I am not qualified to do much (laughs) at all. It's funny you bring up religion and philosophy. My first two YA books were about religion, uh, which, again, is not a super marketable topic for YA, though I think that's changing. There are a lot more books that talk about faith and have religious um, protagonists or, or people figuring out their faith. But just like you said, doing what you love and even you know, once you are in a writing career, leaning into the stuff that really matters to you makes all the difference. It can be hard and it can be discouraging. I actually had a long conversation last night. So I just read a book called Like, Comment, Subscribe by Mark Bergen. Mm -hmm. It is essentially the history of YouTube. 
And I read it out of curiosity. It was sent to me as an advanced copy. And uh, first of all, it's incredible. Everyone should read it. It's fascinating. Secondly, my initial reaction to it, my emotional reaction to it was that I got very angry. And it's not that there's no talent involved. There is talent involved. But when your job is to do unboxing videos, this is my kid playing with a toy. I'm not saying that there's no talent involved in this, and it certainly is a time suck. But early adapters of YouTube, they were making like $7 million a year. Why aren't I doing that? Like, <laughs> uh, And those people get, they get burnt out and they're working very hard and their, lo- their entire private life has to be public. So mm-hmm. I understand that there is an exchange. Don't get me wrong. But I was talking to someone about mediocrity kind of being the king of content these days and producing new content over and over and over something just slightly different. I was just having a particularly pessimistic uh, day as well. So I will add that. But I was definitely hitting a, a point where I work every day and I work so hard and I'm sure that you do too. And I feel burnt out. And I am always trying to say the right thing or find an important topic or Mm -hmm. be meaningful or create art, for lack of a better word. And it's like, I should just have a foot channel on OnlyFans because I have great feet. I can make so much more money. So it's like very often when we talk about the things that we love, like these are our degrees, right? We want to create art and we want to do something meaningful. But at the same time, man, being a sellout sounds awesome. Yeah, it would be so great if what we found personally meaningful was also extremely lucrative. That hasn't (laughs) happened to me yet. But you know, fingers crossed, here's hoping. Is it something that you struggle with as a writer where you sit down and, and you write one sentence and you're like, is that sentence right? And you're just kind of staring at it? It definitely is. And I, I think it is a lot more so now when I know that a book is going to be out in the world, when mm-hmm. it's part of a larger deal. And I know that not only does this sentence exist on my computer, but it may very well exist in a real book that actual people will read and write reviews of on Goodreads. That definitely makes me think in a way that is sometimes kind of paralyzing about like, is this mm-hmm. right? Is it doing enough? Is it saying enough? Me too. I'm, I'm very critical of myself. But I think that is, of course, what makes us better all the time continuously. Yeah. When you're writing, do you write out of a place where you want to alleviate what I feel is a pretty low bar these days for entertainment, but also art? Do you want to write to that or are you are you writing for yourself? Are you writing for your readers? What are your goals like personally when you're creating? I think I definitely write for myself first because I have experience writing for someone else. It's just not as much fun and it's not as fulfilling. And if you are going to sit down and write, you know, an 80,000 word book, you better be getting something out of it or that is just going to be a slog. I definitely am always writing the kinds of things that I enjoy, the kinds of things that I would want to read. Going back to what you said about right now, it seems like a particularly hard time. I feel like I'm also writing with a sense of how can I make the world just a little bit better, a little Mm -hmm. bit less bleak in this time. All my books have kind of varied in tone. Um, They've all been funny, or I hope they've been funny. That's been the intention. Uh, And so particularly when you're writing humor, that's what you're setting out to do. 
I am always looking for how can I make someone's day a little bit more enjoyable in a time that seems particularly hard. I write super dark. I write issues. I write to topics. My goal is to reach the person that also thinks about these things or experiences Mm -hmm. these things and gets that feeling of, oh, okay, I am not a freak for thinking this way or I am not alone for feeling this way. And that brings its own form of relief. But I want to come back to talking about humor because I think right now, yes, we need it. It's so important. People need to laugh. And and so when I say disparaging things about social media, YouTube, like TikTok, whatever, believe me, I'm on it. Like, don't get me wrong. I am a consumer. So I'll watch cats missing their jumps for three hours, right? Like this is... I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing better. My hang up comes from the incredible amount of money that can be made that I can't. I think that's what it actually yeah. just comes yeah. down It's to. not an but even it, distribution. So anyway, coming back to humor and writing humor, I think that's the hardest thing to do. I can make someone cry. I can make you cry pretty easily. Making someone laugh. I feel like that's always a pot shot. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because I felt the complete opposite way. I discovered that I liked writing humor when I was a teenage playwright. And when you're the playwright and you're sitting in the back of a theater, it's really hard to tell how the audience is experiencing your work Mm -hmm. unless they are audibly crying or unless they're laughing. It was much harder, at least for me, to make people cry and a lot easier to make people laugh. I loved that instantaneous reaction that Mm -hmm. let me know that I had communicated with another human being through my words. I think that's why I have always gravitated towards humor. There is an amazing reward in making someone laugh. Yeah. You're speaking about your audience. I do public speaking. And even though I talk about my books and my books are not funny, my presentations always are because I think, Mm -hmm. especially when you're speaking to teens, you have to be entertaining. That's all there is to it. And what amazes me is that I can take the same presentation and I've done them hundreds of times. I can deliver it the same way. I have the same slide saying the same lines. I'm delivering the same jokes. Nothing is changing. And there are days when I am murdering it and everyone is laughing and I'm getting DMs and tweets and emails and people are like, oh my God, that was amazing. You're fantastic. And then there are times when I'm up there, like there's nothing worse than pausing for the laugh that doesn't come. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I almost thrive in that kind of chaos. Humor is so subjective and chaotic in that way where you just do not know. It is hard to figure out what is going to be objectively funny and whether it's going to hit with anyone, much less a larger readership. I kind of like that challenge to see like, how can I take something that I think is funny and punch it up so that the greatest number of people will possibly find it funny. Um, and just knowing that you can't get everyone, you will never get any everyone. And sometimes people will hate your humor so much. It's, it's actually gratifying in a different way because you have made a connection, just not the one that you intended to. I agree completely. If I can make you feel something, I yeah. win. I get emails because uh, my books are hard and people die. And I get emails all the time and people will be like, I am pissed at you. 
And I'm like, that's cool. The tagline for this podcast is, you know, our job is to make people care about things that never happen to people that don't exist. And Mm -hmm. if I can make you very, very upset over the death of a person that never was alive in the first place, then if you're pissed at me about it, that's awesome. I've done my job. Yeah, that is such a victory. Writers and readers love a good meet cute. That moment when something changes, sparks fly, and nothing will ever be the same again. If you love subscription boxes, you will absolutely be obsessed with Meet Cute Box, a membership box for couples that gives you a new themed date night box each month for you and your partner to enjoy. All items are from small local businesses around the world, giving you a new experience each month. Memberships start at $29.99 a month with each box valued up to $100. If you're looking for ways to keep date nights fun and exciting, try Meet Cute Box by checking out meetcutebox.com. Use the code SUMMER20 to get 20% off your first box. Offer expires at the end of June. Visit meetcutebox.com to get your Meet Cute in the mail. When Ashley and her husband adopted three siblings in 2020, they could tell right away the children had been through a lot of trauma. They got into therapy as soon as possible, but after seven months, it still didn't seem to be working. It turns out it was the wrong type of therapy. However, the right type of therapy brought an immediate difference. People are often placed in whatever therapy is quickly available as opposed to the one that would benefit them the most. Because of this, they get stuck in their struggle with mental health. Ashley had an idea. She hired a licensed therapist to create a questionnaire. A web developer to create a website, letsthinkhappy.com. Anyone can take the free questionnaire to find out what type of therapy will help them the most. And if you're really serious about your mental health, you're going to want to buy your full results. Know whether your answers have indicated a mental health condition such as anxiety disorder, depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD, ADHD, and more for just $7.99. For a limited time, get 20% off by using the code LTH20. Don't stay stuck being depressed or anxious all the time. Visit www.letsthinkhappy.com to take the free questionnaire. Life is too short not to be happy. So let's think happy. Starting out with humor, that's where you were. And then you've moved forward into writing a mystery, which of course doesn't exclusively mean that you're not including humor anymore. But talk to me about that jump. Talk to me about changing up there. So it definitely is a comedic mystery. Um, I actually think it's one of my funnier books. That was really important to me to include because something that I find is that the two genres that I feel are closest connected, and this is going to sound very weird, are horror and humor. Um, Mm -hmm. And so thriller and mystery is included in that too, but they're both based on the element of surprise. Um, Mm -hmm. Things make us laugh when they surprise us and things scare us when they surprise us too. And human beings love being surprised, even if we say that we don't, we love it. I went into that 
knowing that I wanted it to be funny and knowing that I wanted to carry some of the other things that I had done previously in more, you know, straight contemporary novels into this, but really working with the mystery elements. It was a really, really difficult transition. I really love mysteries. I love reading them. And I very naively thought that that meant that I would be good at writing one. And I think eventually <laughs> I did get, get there, but it was a struggle. Mysteries make you level up. I feel like. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the reasons that I wanted to do it. This is my fourth book. And I always want to be growing as an author. If I'm lucky enough to have another book, I always want to be doing something new and challenging myself. And I felt like every aspect of writing a mystery, from the plotting to making sure there's still a character arc, and particularly in revision, when changing one scene means everything changes and clues have to be completely rearranged, just asked me to be a better writer, a better collaborator with my editor, too. While it definitely was a challenge, I ultimately feel like I'm a much better writer for having tried it. So talk to me about your process. Are you a planner? Or are you a pantser? I am such a pantser, which is another reason that um, a mystery was a real challenge because you can't just like go into it completely flying blind. I mean, you can, and I definitely did. But at some point, you have to know where you're going. I always pretend that I'm a plotter. I feel like I lie to people, particularly my editor, about that. Yeah, the, the five-page outline, and then by the time he gets the first draft, it is completely different, which he's always very cool with, which is nice. Pantsing does not quite work for mysteries in the same way, though I'm glad I kind of did that as a first draft because it allowed me to discover aspects to the story and to the characters that I might not have gotten if I had plotted it out more carefully as I probably should have. <laughs> so um, for the sake of the listening audience, Katie yeah. and I actually share an editor. Our editor is Ben Rosenthal at Catherine Teagan Books. I think he's probably very accustomed to this kind of working relationship because I have turned in synopsises and outlines and he just knows that that's just kind of the concept might be. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to turn in something similar in the same vein in, you know, about six months. And you'll have to stop me or this is going to turn into the Ben Rosenthal appreciation hour. But <laughs> it sounds like we have a pretty similar working relationship where he gives his authors just a lot of space to discover what the book is without locking in too early. And it's generally just very adaptable in, in what a story can be and where it can go, which I really appreciate. I feel like I don't figure out what the book is about until, I don't know, the second draft, at least. I think that's fair. And I agree. Ben is wonderful. I've worked with Ben on, I think, nine or 10 books now. Oh, and my gosh. Yes. Yeah, so we have like a really good working relationship. I actually like bristle when people ask me what my editor makes me change. And <laughs> I get almost like angry about it. No, my editor is awesome. And that's not what an editor does. And you are misunderstanding the role of an editor. And for anybody that, that questions that, there are plenty of horror stories about like oh, yeah. bad editors out there. But I can say I've worked with like three or four, Ben the most often, and I've never had the experience of sending a book off and having it come back to me and saying, okay, this is what's wrong. And this is exactly how you fix it. Or I fixed it for you. That's yeah. not oh, no. what an editor does. And Ben is particularly good at saying, you gave me this. 
these are your strengths. And this is the strength of this manuscript. These are the areas where it needs work. And here are some ideas for me that I think could be utilized. And of course, I realize that you can just absolutely ignore everything I have to say and find your own way. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of aspiring authors or early stage career authors think of editors and even agents as sort of their bosses. And what Mm -hmm. you really quickly discover is they're not your boss. They are your collaborator. They are here to help you um, achieve your vision. And that ultimately, this is your book, because when it's on a bookshelf, it's going to have your name on the cover and no one else's. I agree. Ultimately, it is a team effort and you're the author. Every editor I've ever had has always said, it's your book. You make the final decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, in addition to what we were talking about in terms of being absolute pantsers in many ways, (laughs) I enjoy the flexibility that it gives me. Yes, there is some panic. And yes, there are some days when I'm just like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have come to trust my process because I've been doing it a long time and I haven't had it fail me yet. One of the reasons why I do enjoy being a pantser is because it allows for so much elasticity. So Mm -hmm. in my book that'll be coming out in 2023, Murder Mystery, Small Town, and it is a pairing, you know, the unlikely duo of the valedictorian and then the girl who is going to be the first person in her family to ever even graduate from high school. When I started writing the book and when I had written the synopsis, I turned it in with my main character, the quote unquote good girl, being very much like a straight arrow and I follow the rules and I'm always doing the right thing and there is value to being perfect. And I started writing it and man, she was angry. She was an angry person. Mm -hmm. And I was like, dude, this is not what I expected out of you. And she was just moving through the world with a very different internal monologue than what she was showing to people. She was a good girl and she was behaving in that manner and checking all those boxes. But her internal monologue is like, no, fuck you, fuck you and fuck you. (laughs) And I was just like, wow, girl. Oh, you know, And, and she changed and it ended up. I think in so many ways, making the manuscript so much better, making that allowance and not having a lock in for even myself about what I'm going to do or where I'm going to take things. That's why I really enjoy being a pantser. Yeah. And I I do think there is a benefit, particularly with mysteries, to being a little bit of a pantser, because so often your protagonist doesn't really know what's going on either. In Gideon Green, he is a former child detective who is coming out of retirement um, to solve a case with his former best friend. Part of his character arc is realizing that he does not know everything. And as the mystery takes them on twists and turns, I think it helped get me in the headspace of not really knowing what was going on to legitimately not really know what was going to happen in the next chapter. (laughs) I really enjoy that. So tell us a little bit more about Gideon Green. This is an idea that I I had a very long time ago when I was a teenager myself. I was thinking about how much I loved Encyclopedia Brown as a kid, those Mm -hmm. books with that wonderful child detective, but was thinking about like how long would that be cool? Because everyone in the Encyclopedia Brown universe seems to think he's like the coolest kid ever. Um, That has an expiration date. At some point, that becomes a lot less cute and a lot 
more off-putting and weird. I had this idea for a one-time child detective who is now 16. And because no one thinks the whole child detective thing is particularly cool anymore, he has retired and instead spends most of his time in his room watching film noir, which he is fully obsessed with, Hmm. until his former best friend, who ditched him in middle school, appears at his door wanting his help on an investigation that she's doing for the school newspaper. So reluctantly, he comes out of retirement and chaos ensues, which is how I feel like all of my books eventually get to the place where just chaos ensues. Chaos ensues is the best way to pitch anything. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote this during the pandemic, right? I did. I did. I was going back in my email trying to find the actual date that I pitched it, but I couldn't. Um, To the best of my recollection, I first pitched this book to Ben on maybe February 28th. And then a couple weeks later, the world completely ended. I live in Manhattan. The world, it felt like completely collapsed from out underneath me as I was just starting to write this book. And my memory of writing the opening chapters of this book is sitting in my my tiny New York apartment and outside the streets are completely empty, which is, is very weird for New York, and just constant, constant sirens. That's my memory of it. And obviously, I would have preferred to be writing under pretty much any other condition. And it was horrible, a really difficult experience to be writing what almost felt like a fantasy book. I would write a sentence about how, you know, two friends hugged in the cafeteria and just like burst into tears because that felt like so far away from the life that I was living and and didn't know when that life would come back. It was very difficult, but I feel like having written it during that particularly time fundamentally shaped the book and what it is about. Gideon starts off as a kid stuck in his room with really nothing going on in his life except watching movies. And that's pretty much where I also was in March Mm -hmm. 2020, not through my own choice. Over the course of the book, he realizes just how much he needs other people and just how valuable and magical and life-giving human connection is. And I'm not sure that it ultimately would have had that focus as a book if I had not been writing it during that time. And what were the difficulties for you in trying to write something, though it's a mystery, with a very deep uh, root in humor, when you yourself are probably really not feeling all that chuckalicious? It was tough, but in some ways, it was really nice to just say, okay, you're going into another headspace. You are inhabiting Mm -hmm. a world that does not resemble your own world at the moment. It was a form of escapism where it was like, okay, everything sucks right now. Life Mm -hmm. is not going well. Put on your headphones and for the next hour, two hours, three hours, you can be somewhere else. That was really valuable for me and something that I'm so glad that I had. And I'm so glad that I basically had to force myself to find the joy in this book and the humor. My books, of course, are very dark, but they also have moments of humor because you can't just hit your head against a wall all the time. Like you have to have a break. (laughs) I always have those flashes of humor. When I hear back from people 
about my books. Like very often what I'm hearing is this spoke to me or thank you for writing this. And I appreciate any outreach whatsoever that anybody gives me. But when I know that I made someone laugh, especially in this uh, environment, like you're talking about, I specifically tried very hard with the book that will be coming out in 2023 called A Long Stretch of Bad Days. I tried very hard to make that one funny, not just surprising moments. Like there's a particular character, anytime she's on the page, you know that she is going to make you laugh. And I'm like, this is what we need right now. I'm still going to be Mindy McGinnis and I'm still going to give you a book with lots of horrible things happening, but I'm going to try to help you laugh a little bit too. I feel like in some ways, YA skews more heavily towards the dark and the issue books. And obviously those books are completely needed and, and so important. But teenagers are also some of the funniest people I interact with ever. And oh, yeah. I think that they, you know, they want humor. They deserve humor too. Like it just shouldn't be just for middle grade books or just for chapter books. Humor in YA is a much needed component. I agree. It's it's funny because like I was talking to uh, at the beginning of the month, Marcy Kate Connolly, and she's telling me that I should write middle grade. And I said, that's a horrible idea. And then I was <laughs> like, but you know, I can really write a fart joke. Like I'm really good with farts. And she was like, then you've got it. Like you're good. You know what I'm also really good at is dick jokes. I don't know how many dick jokes you're allowed to write. I mean, none in middle grade, but um, <laughs> I'm sure there's also a cap on YA. My mind yeah. goes weird places sometimes. So, you know, I don't know. Humor mm-hmm. for teens can be difficult because they want dick jokes, right? They want sex jokes. Like mm-hmm. that is the funniest thing when you're that age and uh, raunchy humor. And believe me, I am here for it. But I also can't write a whole book of dick jokes, much like I can't write a whole book of fart jokes for middle grade. Like you got to have a little more substance there. I have not yet found what the limit is for dick jokes. Um, I've always wondered if I'm going to approach it, but haven't yet. My first book, Heretics Anonymous, has a an extended dick joke that I cannot believe anybody let me keep. And it so divides the room. Like I have had people tell me it is the funniest part of the book. And I have also <laughs> seen people abandon the book at that exact moment, which is also fair. <laughs> well, you know what? That's okay. When that happens, I always say, you know what? I didn't write it for you then. Yeah. Yep. A buddy of mine, his name is Kurt Dinan. He is from Ohio. He writes humor. His book uh, with source books is called Don't Get Caught. And it's about a prank war in high school. And it's fantastic. It's so funny. But it, he's got a running joke. It's kind of like the equivalent of that's what she said, but it's like my balls, you know? And so, <laughs> you know, somebody would be picking some, something up and be like, oh my God, this is heavier than I thought it would be. And they'd be like, yep, like my balls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that is great. Just like inappropriate enough. I think that's the kind of stuff that teens are going to laugh at. Their parents might not, but you know. Yeah. I will say that. I will say I've never had a teenager complain about like language or dick jokes. I have had many parents complain. (laughs) And I one time a parent found um, my third book, which is about stand up comedy um, in the public library. And she circled every single swear (gasps) word or reference to drugs and posted it on Facebook. And it's just like, you know what? I am so sorry. Your child has heard all of these words before. I am not the one 
showing this to them for the first time. Your child watches Euphoria and Riverdale like none of this is my fault. Calm down. And also, who writes in a library book? Like, come on. That's the worst no. part. I, I don't even mind her hating swearing. And she did it in pen, too. If you do that to oh, a library geez. book, like, come on. What's yeah. wrong with you? Once again, if you hate that, then I didn't write this book for you. You are not my audience. You can be angry over there by yourself and go find someone that fits what you want to read a little bit better. I don't want to read Happily Ever After Romances. They piss me right the hell off because I've been divorced like twice. This projects a unrealistic view of monogamy, right? It's like, you know, you're not circling every kiss in the book and returning it to the library. That's good. This is misleading people about the size of most men's penises as well. (laughs) We should do that. We should just start a Facebook page where it's like things that are just so inoffensive that like no one would have a problem with be like, I got a problem with the size of dicks in romance books because you know what? Not the case. Danielle Steele really set me up to be disappointed. That's all. Her and Jude Devereaux, man. (laughs) Everyone has stopped listening. This has been like five minutes of talking about dick jokes. No, they're, they're Googling my dating I'm here for history. It. That's what's happening. They're Googling my <laughs> dating history. They're like, who has Minnie McGinnis dated? And what is their dick size? Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Last thing. Why don't you let listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find any of your books, but especially Gideon Green. Uh, So you can find all four of my books, including Gideon Green in Black and White, most places that books are sold. You can find me at my website, which is katiehenrywrites.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram. I have not yet gotten on TikTok, but you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at kt underscore nre. So that's kilo tango underscore November Romeo Echo. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.